This is the Monday, October 30th, 2017 episode of the History Author Show. Visit our iHeartRadio channel or subscribe on iTunes to enjoy a brand new episode every Monday morning. Oh, New York ain't New York anymore. How I miss those old pals of mine. The sawdust is gone from the floor. Where we harmonize, sweet Adeline, on the east side, west side, things ain't like before. There are tears in the eyes of the regular guys, oh, New York ain't New York anymore. Hello, history lovers, and welcome. I'm your host, Dean Carianis. And this is the History Author Show on iHeartRadio. This week, our time machine bolts on its studded snow tires for a freezing journey to the North Pole. A trip we'll make long before GPS, cell phones, Gore-Tex gloves, or any of our modern survival equipment. We're signing on with Gilded Age men in search of scientific discovery aboard the schooner USS Jeanette. Returning to the show are husband and wife writing team, Sandra Neal Wallace and Rich Wallace. They last joined us to discuss their book, Blood Brother, Jonathan Daniels and His Sacrifice for Civil Rights. You can hear that chat in our archives at historyauthor.com or wherever you're listening. Their book today is a world away from the sweltering Alabama heat of the 1960s. It's called Bound by Ice, a true North Pole survival story, and it's aimed at readers 9 to 18 years of age. You've seen Sandra Neal Wallace's work as a news anchor and ESPN sportscaster. Of particular interest to me as a hockey fan, Sandra was the first woman to host an NHL show on network television. Her husband, Rich, has written over three dozen novels for children and teens, and he co-wrote titles such as Babe Conquers the World, with Sandra. The Young Adult Library Services Association named his novel Wrestling Sturbridge one of the 100 best of the best for the 21st century. You can visit our guests at sandraneilwallace.com and richwallacebooks.com. That last name is W-A-L-L-A-C-E. While you're online, you can also toss likes to their Facebook pages and follow them on Twitter at Sandra N. Wallace and at R. Wallace Books. Okay, now that we know a little bit about today's authors, let's put on our parkas and join them in the true north, bound by ice. I'm joined via Skype by husband and wife writing team Rich Wallace and Sandra Neal Wallace. They are co-authors of Bound by Ice, a true North Pole survival story. Thank you so much for making the time to chat with the History Author Show a second time. Dean, we're so thrilled to be here again and to talk about these brave explorers. Thanks for having us on. We're glad to be here. Well, I'm glad to have you here. And I was 
really glad to read this book. It reminded me of those adventure stories that I would read when I was a young person and you'd have a man against the elements. You'd have somebody trying to survive. There was also a woman in one book. I can't remember the title of the book, but I remembered vividly her being stuck in a car and out there snowed in and one of the things she does is she needs to boil water and she uses the ashtray. This is back when cars had ashtrays. And there was the taste of mint because someone had been throwing their gum in there. Something you might think would be disgusting. I guess it is pretty disgusting if you're in the civilized world. But in a survival situation, she was so happy to have that taste of mint in the water from the ashtray that she was forced to, to drink water out of. And it just boils you down, literally, no pun intended, to your very essence in a survival situation. You really find out what people are made of. And that's the case here in these men in Bound by Ice. We last spoke about your book, Blood Brother, which actually happens to be right here on the shelf in front of me. <laughs> that book was very different and the inspiration was different. Jonathan Daniels in Blood Brother is a local hero where you live in Keene, New Hampshire. And Bound by Ice is a much different slice of history. It's way out of the living memory. It's after the Civil War in America. This is happening. This takes place, this spirit of adventure and exploration. So how did the inspiration come about this time? Well, Dean, different, and yet there are similarities. As you know, I'm drawn to stories about people who break barriers and become change makers. And you know that means that they often risk their lives for what they believe in, in this case, in Bound by Ice. It was about advancing humanity through science and discovery. So I was really inspired by the courage of those USS genetic explorers and their seemingly superhuman skills, which helped many of them survive. And their discoveries broke through some pretty serious inaccuracies about the Arctic, and they really changed polar history. But what really drew me in was their strength to survive and to help each other. That changed the mindset of future explorers and really made me want to write about their stories. You know, what I was really blown away with by these explorers, I mean, yeah, they were naval captains and engineers and a medical doctor on board. But every one of these guys from the lowliest sailors had these incredible skills, not, you know, not, not just seamanship, but they were, they were philosophers, they were navigators, they were poets. They were just interested in so many different things. They all wrote extremely well which benefited us immensely because so many of their diaries exist from this expedition. I also think fear of the unknown, you know, that fear factor of getting stranded somewhere is timeless. Just like that question, you know, could you survive the harshest climatic conditions known to humankind? And for some of those genetic explorers, the answer luckily, happily was yes. But we really wanted to know how did they stay alive? You know, what did that courage look like? And quite frankly, who died and who lived? That's what we wanted to know. And reading about their survival skills and how they were tested physically and emotionally really, I think, is what young readers will find gripping about Bound by Ice. And that's why I hearken back to those adventure stories of my own youth, because that's who this book is aimed at. And I know that had I been a young person there, if this book was available with this great cover here with the half sinking boat and the ice, it's so dramatic. I know that when they would send us around those little catalogs at my middle school, it would have definitely been one that I checked off and wanted to read because it does touch to that sense of adventure. It is that idea, maybe why 
kids today play a lot of video games that are adventurous. Can't ever compete, though, with reading a great book that's real history that gets you into the moment and that reminds people, especially today and young people in particular, of a time before anything like GPS or cell phones where getting lost really meant getting lost. Today, it's not really possible for it to happen anymore when you think about it. It'd be very hard if you were writing a novel today to put people in this sort of situation. It would be a challenge, get them completely away from any sort of technology. They'd probably have some sort of map. They would have something. And the whole fact that these people are going into what the title of chapter one is, which is The Great Unknown. Anywhere we go today, somebody has been there before, so that's completely different. You have a quote in there. You say, adventurers imagined a warm tropical sea at the top of the world, so they really didn't know what they were in for. Maybe this was a relic from the earlier warmer periods before the Little Ice Age in human history when the Vikings traveled to areas like Greenland, not yet covered by ice, but... Whatever the source, there were these legends that drew men. There were these stories, just like Columbus thinking there were monsters out there. You look at those old maps when you're young, and it says, here there be monsters. And it's just sort of that big white area that, that no one has tread before. With those legends in mind and the temptation to these brave adventurers, there comes this craze known as Arctic fever that catches on. Everybody wants to be the first to get through this fabled Northwest Passage and journey there and discover what they think will be a warm paradise. I want to dig a little bit into that Arctic fever idea. Before the journey you describe here in Bound by Ice, tell us what fate befell adventurers that were keen to reach the North Pole. Death. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, A lot of failed expeditions before this. The the most famous is probably the Franklin expedition, which was about 25 years or so before the Jeanette, where a similar group, but less well-prepared than those on the Jeanette, were bound in ice for a significant amount of time. They wound up dying of scurvy, of lead poisoning, and those who died were consumed by the others. So there was cannibalism there. No one actually survived that expedition. And that was the most horrifying one that we know of. But there were a lot of failed attempts. But little by little, they were advancing science. And Rich, I mentioned a little bit what made me as a young boy love to read these sort of adventure books. It was a unique experience back then, living your life on your bike, tunneling out little caves, making snow forts. I know, like myself, you're in Bergen County, New Jersey. So what did you feel about writing a book that maybe would have been something that a young boy there would want to pick up and imagine themselves in that journey? Well, you know, this is something that really happened. I think like you, it sounds like you were probably a Jack London fan like I am. Yeah, sure. And, uh, you know, one of my favorite short stories of all time is To Build a Fire. Yep. I've probably read that a hundred times. And <laughs> I was always taken by that idea of, you know, one adventurer out there on his own in pretty difficult conditions, but with a fair amount of arrogance about what he thought he could do against the the elements and finding out, unfortunately, through a couple of really trivial mishaps, costing his life. It's something, too, to look at the arrogance. I would say we don't want to condescend to people in the past, but characters like that, they were trying to teach us something, the man and to build a fire mm-hmm. and we get to see a little of the dog's viewpoint, which for me was very cool, having an, an animal background and just part of the whole idea of 
he tries to do something. He has a an overinflated sense of his own abilities. Whereas these men here in Bound by Ice, you relate to them because they do have the best information and the best technology available at the time. And they're not doing this for the fame of it. They're doing it for the scientific exploration of it, for the knowledge of it. That's their main thing. They have other people who are into the sensational side of their adventure, but they're really brave people that they're doing this for a noble reason. And they're doing it as a team, which when you start to have something like your boat freezing in ice and people getting sick from scurvy and you're afraid the food and water is running out, that's really the time that you're tested. And yet they all stick together. I thought that that was really great, especially when the temptation for a good story, one of the rules is you want conflict. And yet you frame this as these men. And I mean, that was the story. You didn't have to frame it, but these men were unified against the elements and so the elements themselves the frigid weather becomes the enemy yeah i totally agree dean i mean there's no doubt that bound by ice is the ultimate true story of adventure and survival but you know it also demonstrates the best of humanity so once the quest for the north pole turns into a race to survive the crew really chose to work together and to help each other live and they shared rations and carried each other when necessary so in the worst of conditions they never lost that empathy or kindness so they were willing to die to advance science, but they also did everything they could to help each other live. And that's what I found incredibly remarkable. And, you know, Dean, you say they were extremely well prepared for the time which they were and that they had the best information. But the best information at that time was not particularly good. <laughs> yeah. There was a map maker named August Peterman who was, you know, renowned for his alleged knowledge of the Arctic. And he really didn't have much at all. So when these guys got up there, they found the maps were all wrong. His theory that there was a a warm ocean current that they could follow right up to the pole was absolutely fatally wrong. And this guy was revered at the time, and they they believed him like everybody else did. But ironically, August Peterman never traveled anywhere, so he was an armchair adventurer, but that's who they were relying on for their lives. Wasn't he the one who never left France or wherever he was to actually travel there? He'd never been anywhere. (laughs) They were cursing him a lot. You know, cursing goes back hundreds of years because we looked at the the journals and uh, there was Commander DeLong saying, we cursed August Peterman yet today discovering that Greenland (laughs) wasn't a continent. Yeah. Uh, Lieutenant Commander George Washington DeLong, he mentioned there, he's the leader of the expedition inbound by ice. Who was he and how did he come to be in command of the Jeanette? He was pretty well shielded by his parents, especially his mother. He wasn't allowed to go out and boat or swim and make snow forts, those sorts of things. He he was you know, kind of bookish and he really wanted, he had this sense of adventure and he finally talked his parents into letting him go to the Naval Academy. And from there, you know, he became a a very revered um, commander of ships. And one of his uh, expeditions was in the Arctic over on the east coast of the North Atlantic there, where he had been on a rescue expedition in pretty treacherous waters. So that was kind of what set him up and made him recognize as somebody who could command a journey like this one. And that's when, when he really fell in love with the Arctic, Dean. But he was also deeply in love with his wife, Emma. She was an independent woman who insisted on being with him on that test voyage of the Jeanette from France to San Francisco. They were so in love with each other that DeLong rode in a boat with Emma right up to the Jeanette. 
just before the voyage began, and he kept a lock of her hair in his pocket. And that really struck the other crew members who were watching, people like engineer George Melville, who felt married to the sea and he had a lousy marriage. So reading the love letters between Emma and George DeLong and how they may never see each other again, that was really heartbreaking for us to read. And it really spoke of the humanity of these explorers. And think about that trip from France all the way to San Francisco in the days before there's a Panama Canal. And this is not as if they're on a luxury cruise by any means. I think, well, the two of you, here we go. You're a husband and wife writing team. I'm sure the idea, no matter how much we love our spouses, of being jammed on a tiny, tiny boat with things like seasickness and the water going up and down, and there's not even anything to read you didn't bring with you, that'll test a relationship. And theirs certainly survives it, and they, they come right off the boat loving each other. It's kind of nice. Yeah, Emma they... said that was like the most memorable period of her life was that trip where they were bringing the Jeanette from Europe to San Francisco to actually prep it for the voyage north. And they brought their little daughter, Sylvie, with them. And uh, like Rich said, she cherishes the memories of those months and as he did and felt that that was the most poignant times of their lives. So uh, they were were really united and she supported him completely in, in what she did. She came from a nautical family and she she understood and honored his, his mission and his quest to... Um, advance humanity, advance science, and they knew full well that they may never see each other again. They knew they wouldn't see each other for a good two years and that there was a strong chance that they would never see each other again. And yet he still gets on there in the name of science and exploration. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You fill Bound by Ice with a host of colorful people like the DeLongs. You include what you describe as an all-star crew. These Men are really bound together there on the ship, and they pull together. They all have their own skills. It really is a great story. It's almost like a Star Trek adventure where everyone brings their own piece to the narrative. The cast of characters, though not on the boat, includes James Gordon Bennett Jr., owner of the New York Herald. I mentioned that idea of sensationalizing the trip and trying to make a buck out of it. How does he inspire, support, and exploit the DeLong expedition? Mostly exploit. I mean, he was a, what you would think of as a, a tabloid type of editor today. He had decided that, you know, this Arctic fever, this race to the pole would sell an awful lot of newspapers. So he had telegraph equipment on board, telephone equipment on board. None of this stuff actually worked, but they were supposed to be sending regular reports back to the Herald so that the world could follow what was going on with this expedition. Once they got out of Alaska, there was no contact whatsoever with the ship, however. Yeah, he was an aristocrat, Dean. He was also a playboy who loved to drink and sail and really caused a sensation both personally and in his newspaper. So he never hesitated to publish untruths or fake news. So fake news was alive and well hundreds of years ago uh, before today. His real appeal to fund the voyage to the North Pole was because back then the North Pole was the greatest unknown frontier on earth. And his ego really wanted him to be a part of discovering it. Yeah, I liked when you said that about him making up the stories. I was going to point that out when you said that they leave Alaska and there's no more 
heard from them. And I said, well, that didn't stop him from making things up, right? Oh, they're fine. And especially then you realize that's one thing to sell some newspapers to people on the street. It's not particularly kind to try to capture their dime that way. But then you're speaking about his wife and daughter left behind and you're you're giving them hope and you're tugging their emotions everywhere. So it's the dark seedy side of, of doing that. It's It's easy to forget. That was something that he did that you think, well, not much that he could do, but it was it was really bothersome that he did that. It makes it makes it a little villainous, and maybe because this is a book for young people, future journalists, or in any endeavor, you remind people that that's not a great way to be. As frustrating as it is to say you don't know anything, it's good to do it because that's the truth. Yeah, I mean, he really had the audacity to lie to Commander DeLong's wife, Emma, saying that Captain was alive and well, but Emma was very sage and she knew what he was like and she knew about the fake news happening in papers. So she didn't trust him and uh, was was quite worried along the voyage and uh, was able to read between the lines. She had a great feeling that she'd never see her husband again. You dug into a lot of those old newspaper stories, which is something that I enjoy doing myself. Read the writing. It's so dramatic. It's really colorful. It's often melodramatic. Never mind the negative side of it that sometimes it's completely made up. Mm -hmm. As a writing team, I wonder how you break down the work of research to ensure that you don't overlap or leave any sources untapped. Well, like you said, there was so many truths that we found in primary sources. And Rich may have a totally different answer than I do, but I really feel that working with another journalist like him on research and co-authoring long-form nonfiction projects with a great writer like him who writes nonfiction as compelling as his fiction is a win-win situation for me. So first off, what we do is we both read the same research materials and we choose the sections then that we want to write about. So to some people that may seem counterproductive, but it really works for us. And it really enables us to become editors of the manuscript and to keep both of us on point once we determine the focus and the trajectory of the story. So for continuity and flow, we become each other's editors before the manuscript even gets to the editor of the book. And Rich really keeps me on track. We're also accountable to each other when it comes to deadlines, and we challenge one another to keep sharpening our detective skills and solving the seemingly impossible hundreds of questions that usually pop up while we're researching the book that we're determined to answer. Yeah, we love pouring through this research material. And, you know, one of the hardest things is determining what not to put in the book, Mm -hmm. you know, because there's there's so much great stuff that you can always use. Sandra always pushes me a little further than I would normally go. And that is for the benefit of everything that we do. She is absolutely relentless as a researcher. She's always making that extra phone call. She's always finding that extra piece of material. And me just following her lead on that is the best that I can hope to do, because I've never seen anybody like her. Thank you. Well, it's a great result. That's all to our benefit. We're fortunate that you work on them together. Because I read this book and I thought a couple times, well, maybe they could have written this as a book that was not for this under 18 age group, but I enjoyed it just as much, even though I just had my 30th high school reunion. So I'm, I'm not high school age anymore. And yet you put enough facts in there and you put enough good writing. It's not even that it's facts. It's just it was just a solidly written book and it keeps you right in there with them on this ship. It's the ultimate crucible in writing there. They're they're bound by ice. They're in on the ship there as the ice closes in on them eventually. They're languishing aboard the Jeanette and we're right there with them. And 
if you have, as Theodore Roosevelt said, why he went to the Amazon on that great doomed adventure, mm-hmm. because it was my last chance to be a boy. There's that part of in all of us or of a girl if you're Sandra where you want to go on some kind of adventure and try to find this Shangri-La they start to have challenges from the very beginning they persevere together one of those you alluded to on an earlier journey is lead poisoning that that's a problem but here in Bound by Ice they discover the cause in a really clever way and I love that as somebody who loves to solve problems and fix things But also it tells us about the men on the ship, that all-star team, those people who each one of them has knowledge outside even their chosen field, and they're able to find the source of problems like this. I I just love this detail in the book. Tell me about that. How do they discover that they're being poisoned by lead? You know, they'd been out in the ice for a good year and a half. Um, And actually, there were two different groups at that point, just because one small group of explorers had gone off because they had actually reached an island. You know, even though they were still locked in the ice, they were drifting. So they were they were moving from place to place. They, they couldn't control where they were going. But there was an island in the distance. So George Melville led a group that went off to, to explore that island. And they all got sick. At the same time, concurrently, the people back on the boat were getting sick, too, and they didn't know why. There was lead poisoning was what the doctor surmised that they had. They had terrible cramping and things like that. They thought it was probably from the distillation of the water, but it turned out that that wasn't it. They thought maybe some of the pellets that they used to shoot seals and and ducks had caused it. And then someone found out, well, you know, there's bits of uh, solder in these tomato cans. We've been eating canned tomatoes for a year and a half. (laughs) The acid in the tomatoes was leaching lead out of the cans. So this wasn't a factor when they first took off, but after a year and a half, two years or so, it had built up enough that they all developed symptoms of lead poisoning. The irony was that they thought they were so good at solving the scurvy issue because they had a lemon and lime juice on board, and they ended up being sickened by lead poisoning. So had they not discovered it when they did, we might have had a large part like the Franklin. So many of the Franklin crew dying of lead poisoning. So they pretty much caught it on time and stopped eating the canned the canned tomatoes and mm-hmm. um, relying more on other provisions on the ship and also hunting and eating meat. Yeah, I remember when we were writing that section and um, Sandra saying, you know, I forget the exact line that she used was like, these guys have been surviving incredible odds for nearly two years now, and they're going to die of canned tomatoes. Right. And that's what we said, (laughs) who shot the tomatoes? So. Oh, and that's a funny thing because they they were laughing at the time until afterwards, but it's that kind of thing where they are looking. And if you don't know something basic, like that there's solder, that there's lead in the solder, rather, you would have no idea what the source was. And you read that sometimes in history books and you want to yell at the poor people in there who just through no fault of their own are ignorant of it. But that is one of those knowable facts at the time. And how fortunate for them, they have somebody who thinks through the process and wonders how that happened, because that wasn't something that they thought that they would face. And here they are getting lead poisoning and wondering what is the source of it. You know, one remarkable thing about these people, they were laughing about that when they discovered it. You mentioned, you know, the boyishness of these guys at one point. When the ship was first bound by ice and a large iceberg and an ice flow was crushing the ship, this was about a year before it sank. And people like 
Melville and the Long and the other officers were really concerned that, oh my gosh, this ship might sink now. They went outside and they found the sailors playing on this giant iceberg that had crashed into them and sliding down it, you know, like it was a playground and just having fun with it. And there's so many instances like that where somebody gets dunked headfirst into this nearly freezing salty ocean that they break through and everybody else just laughs about it and pulls them out and says, oh, you'll be fine. And those those are the human elements and the riding of the emotions that we really wanted to bring out in the book. Thank you for the compliment early on talking about having the readers feel like they were in the moment. That's what we really want the readers to get a sense of being embedded on the ship in the Arctic and experiencing the trials and tribulations and the personalities of these crew members and the mistakes that they make and also the genius discoveries and patch-up jobs that people like Chief Engineer George Melville did, making windmills and figuring out how to purify water. I mean, he saved the day a countless number of times. He was amazing. He had some great words, did DeLong, to say about him. As I was reading Bound by Ice, said, wow, this this guy was a good leader and he had good people. He assembled a great team. And if they couldn't do it, nobody could at that point. And unfortunately, they were just completely wrong about what they were going for. But to be stuck on that boat, to be there, then have all these challenges, poison, trying to get food, starvation, no sunlight, all of these things. That was really was, that was a great way to put it, all-star team. These people all pulled their weight and pulled in the same direction. And I think reading it as a young person, you'd be drawn to that just the same way we are to sports or anything else where we have all these people that are pulling in one direction and going for a common goal. It really is an inspirational story. Thank you. Well, you know, Dean, uh, we couldn't believe that August Peterman told them that Arctic water doesn't have any salt. Oh, yeah. You great. can just melt it down and, and <laughs> drink it. And, you know, everyone believed him. And of course, when they went there, they were cursing Peterman again. And there was George Melville who had to create a filtration system because it was loaded with salt. Yeah. So you posted that on Facebook. My first thought was, but nothing comes for free. It requires a lot of fuel to be able to boil it and to be able to have the desalinization process occurring right there. And people drink a lot of water, human beings. So these are all tough things and through no fault of their own. Theodore Roosevelt's expedition that I mentioned to the River of Doubt in South America, the things that they made mistakes on were knowable things. So that's frustrating on a whole other level. But they were going to an uncharted place where they, they thought it would be a very easy tributary to the Amazon, the main Amazon, which it wasn't. But they didn't bring the right boat. TR brings this whole library with him, which is insane. I'm sure he would have included Bound by Ice in his library. <laughs> but this was unknowable. So they're just going literally into the unknown with only their wits against the elements. And that's such a great story. It's, it's really a an iconic thread that runs throughout human history of just going into the unknown boldly with your wits and counting on yourself. Yeah. You know, DeLong kept these really detailed journals writing every day or several times a day about what was going on. And throughout that, one of his biggest concerns is the amount of coal that they were burning through unexpectedly, particularly to desalinate the water, but for other concerns as well. And that was something that, you know, was unexpected. And again, he, he knew they could survive, you know, minus 40 degree weather for months and months on end. They had enough food. They could shoot seals. They could shoot polar bears. They were going to survive under any conditions, but if they ran out of coal, forget it. They freeze to death. Yeah. 
And by the way, minus 40, you said that kind of casually, which I would have expected from your <laughs> wife being from Canada, like my wife would have been uh, casually flip over. Oh, negative 40, but negative 40. If you have not experienced, it's really cold. And I know my wife, when I mentioned that temperature to her once, she said, well, once you get below like negative 25, you, it's all the same. It's just so cold. You can't even register it, but that is extremely cold. And I know when I first visited Winnipeg one Christmas many years ago to visit her family, I was out there and she said, you can't come. You don't have the clothes for it. Talk about not being prepared. And this was knowable. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I thought, oh, well, you know, I've been through winter in New Jersey. Well, so what? I put on another sweater, right? Put on a hat. No, you, your skin will freeze. <laughs> These are all the kind of challenges that they're facing there. So negative 40 is not to be scoffed at. The famous thing there in To Build a Fire when he spits, and that's how he judges how cold it is. And mm -hmm. his spit freezes and crackles before it hits the ground. It's so cold. Right. Well, they, these guys, you know, if it got up to 15 or 20 degrees above zero, they were working in T-shirts because they felt warm. Yeah, it's crazy. And to go knowingly into that, we never want to go up into that without your parka and you have a car and you have a hotel 10 feet from the hotel to the car and you're freezing today. So they were really made of strong stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, well, once the voyage became a race for survival, you know, it was a battle against those harsh winter elements. We were talking about this minus 40 degree cold, but just as punishing for the crew were those uneven ice flows with mountain sized ice piles that the crew had to scale while they were lugging these rowboats. And, you know, they went snow blind, they were exhausted, they were too weak to hunt. And what they did do, like Rich mentioned, was they saved their notes and journals. And because of that, explorers after them were actually able to get to the North Pole and to decide to bring things like skis for transport instead of rowboats and to build snow forts instead of hoping to find abandoned huts. <laughs> Yeah, know that there wasn't going to be fresh water up there for them to drink. They knew that they needed something to keep themselves hydrated. Yeah. My guests are Rich and Sandra Neal Wallace. They are co-authors of Bound by Ice, a true North Pole survival story. You can visit them at SandraNealWallace.com and RichWallaceBooks.com. And you can follow them at the Twitter handles Sandra N. Wallace and R. Wallace Books. And while you're on there, while you're on their Facebook pages liking them, you get a lot of great alerts and little add-ons to the book. This is a great thing about the modern internet era as we can hear from our favorite authors all the time and we can get a little extra piece of their research sometimes because I know they have a big pile of it and you can't fit it all in the book. Kirkus Review calls Bound by Ice, quote, a gripping account of a disastrous 1879 American expedition to the North Pole and writes, quote, the authors skillfully incorporate quotes from journals, letters, and official documents. Vivid language and narrative techniques such as cliffhangers maximize the drama, while well-chosen anecdotes convey the personalities. I chose that review because it digs into the craft of writing and lets us see some of the marks your ice pick left on the project, so to speak. How did you climb this mountain of adult subject matter? You talked about the mountains of ice. How did you go up against that with your little ice picks and chisel it down into a narrative that would hold the interests of younger readers and adult readers and end up being a book? I'm holding it here in my hand, which is, you know, it's not massive, huge, heavy tome. If I was going to go and wait somewhere maybe for somebody to bust up, I'd stuff it right in my pocket and just be able to pull it out and, and enjoy it. So how did you do that? That must have been a huge feat. 
you're right, Dean. It took time, and it was a mountain of primary sources from, let's see, we had letters, journals, and depositions. But through all those artifacts, you know, we carved out the personalities of the crew. That was what we were really interested in. That's where we always start. And you talked about the Kirkus review. There was a recent review about us that just said not only do they want to know all the facts, which is so true, but they want the feel of the settings to mingle with the hopes and fears of the characters. And that's really our goal. So the voices of the crew really guided us. Don't you think, Rich, for the narrative? We let them tell the story. And then when they couldn't speak, we did. Yeah, when we were thinking about this book and we knew we had so many great firsthand resources, I mean, literally these journals that they lugged across the Arctic ice to Siberia. 45 pounds. Um, wow. And also, you know, smaller journals from the ship's doctor, from the naturalist, the book that that George Melville wrote. Reading through those, you know, DeLong's journals, I mean, he records temperature and ice thickness and a lot of mundane stuff in there, important stuff for science. But we would go through and really find the places where he talked about conflict or he talked about the despair or the few moments of, of real joy that happened. So finding those high points and stringing together with our own narrative, specific excerpts from those journals that help tell the story in their words. Yeah. And we always have an eye of history context. We really feel that when it comes to history, knowing our past gives us an understanding of where we came from, and then that promotes critical thinking. So we think it's vital for young readers to know how our world got to this point, how humans have navigated life before them, often badly, but also in this case, really heroically. And it begs the question for them to ask, what course do they want to chart? And we talk more about that in the epilogue of the book and the ramifications of the failures and success of this expedition. So it's something that we love to do to just contextualize history through human emotions and having the reader, like I had said before, embedded in their conflict and with the cliffhangers that Rich is also so great at knowing. When we first found out about this voyage, there was a part of me that wanted to know right away who died and who lived. And when I found that out, I was surprised. And I wanted the readers to be surprised that some of the people who you thought might survive didn't Hmm. and vice versa. Yeah, because you start to identify with them so much, which it's also in the Kirkus Review where they say the personalities. You get so much out of little things like that lock of Emma's hair that he's carrying or the pocket watch that they're all just trying to keep that going. It becomes so important to them and becomes such a symbol. And also how quirky the naturalist Raymond Newcomb was. I mean, he'd rather be stuffing animals than having conversations with people. (laughs) And he was so protective of his taxidermy that he hoarded all those stuffed animals in his cabin. And then they stunk so much that Commander DeLong ordered him to... uh, get rid of as many as he could. And he was he was devastated by that. So he pulled out a pencil and, you know, these guys were expert illustrators and he he illustrated um, all the new Arctic animals that he identified before he dumped them. Um, to be eaten by dogs. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> to be eaten by dogs or they had 33, put, in the, put in the water. They had a couple of dozen dogs on this journey too, which, uh, you know, we, we talk about them a lot. There's a whole chapter devoted to the dogs and they you see them throughout the book. And we also write about the annoyances. I mean, not only were these crew members just dying to have things like pumpkin pie and oysters after noshing on pemmican for a year. But there was one crew member who just 
had constant horrible jokes and was really annoying on the piano. He was a big <laughs> Gilbert and Sullivan fan. He was constantly singing that stuff, and Melville could not stand that. He hated this guy, Collins, who was actually a representative of the New York Herald that Bennett had sent along, was supposed to be the one who was sending reports back to the New York Herald on a regular <laughs> basis. And he was in charge of the telegraph equipment and things mm -hmm. like that and couldn't get it to work. He also couldn't get the Thomas Edison lights to work either. So George Melville had to bail out uh, Jerome Collins plenty of times. Collins was supposed to bring photography equipment, and he did bring some, but he didn't bring enough of it or the right stuff, so he couldn't take pictures. Melville had his own camera. That camera, unfortunately, went down with the ship, so we don't have those photographs, but Melville had been taking photographs the whole time. There's always one Jonah, I guess, on every ship. Somebody <laughs> is noteworthy, though. Again, this spirit of camaraderie that they have that they don't just throw him overboard with the taxidermied animals for the dogs to eat, which may have been right. tempted at times. And you know, Dean, if I could have predicted some of the crew members who wouldn't survive, I thought it would be Jerome Collins because he refused to exercise and he was quite belligerent. And yet he was one of the, the last ones to die. And that was incredible. I didn't know where that fortitude came from because he had never been to the Arctic. He was ill-equipped. And yet he was, he was one of the final crew members to perish. I pulled one quote out of Bound by Ice. It is, one of the thrills of research is the opportunity to hold pieces of history in your hands. That jumped out at me because we talk a lot about walking in the place where history takes place, but you had this great fortune of obviously not being able to walk on the ice that they walked in. I don't think you would have liked to have done that. Rich probably doesn't have the clothes for it. Sandra may still have some of the Canadian level five coat up there, but you weren't about to walk from Siberia to the North Pole to do research, but you did have this wonderful chance to go and hold some of these relics in your hands and feel something that would have been right there on the Jeanette or owned by these men that are on this journey. So what were some of those and what goes through your head when the history that you've been researching for so long literally comes into a solid form and you're able to have it right there in front of you? One of the most poignant pieces was a tiny porcelain doll that the long bought in Alaska that he wanted to give to his daughter. And he carried that with him the whole time. It was a tiny thing about the size of your thumb wrapped in a little blanket. And he had that with him. It was on him when he died. Other artifacts, well, the logbooks in particular, I mean, it's just amazing to pick these up. They're at the Naval Academy Museum in, uh, in Annapolis. Uh, they, they weigh 45 pounds. And that was the thing that the long most wanted to have with him in the 500 mile trek from where the ship sank to Siberia. He, he wanted to make sure that that material was preserved because he knew how valuable it would be in the future, whether he survived or not. There's also these SOS notes that they left all over Siberia and saying who they were, where they had come from, what their you know longitude and latitude were at the time and where things that they had left behind might be found. And these handwritten notes, again, are at the Naval Academy and also at Dartmouth College, which is close to us. So some of our research was done only an hour from home. What struck me was the lock of Emma's hair that DeLong gingerly had in his breast pocket. It was a, it's a beautiful blonde lock of hair. And, you know, when the curator took out these artifacts for us and he quickly left, just it gives you pause. I actually had to take a break because I was really, really moved seeing all of this, realizing 
that these artifacts are from 1879, 1880, and knowing what they went through and um, the humanity of that and the immediacy was just really, really touching. And, and our hope was that we could transfer that level of emotion and humanity in the book. And also things like their broken spectacles and Ambler's pocket watch and the medals that they were later posthumously given and actually being able to touch them with our hands. Yeah, there's two medals in particular that weren't on the voyage. They were issued, you know, after the fact posthumously to Alexi and Anigan, who are two Yupik explorers, expert hunters and dog sled drivers, trappers, who joined the crew in Alaska. And I think the long knew that how valuable they'd be because they, they knew the terrain. And so they were on this journey the entire time. They were very, very helpful to the crew and the rest of the crew, I mean, in many different ways. And the U.S. Congress issued medals of honor to them. Both of them perished after the fact. Those are also on display at the Naval Academy, and we were able to look at those and hold those. Those two, again, very important explorers. So we wanted to know a lot more about, and we did some real pretty intense research with people at the University of Alaska, at the Bureau of Indian Affairs, and elders in the native village of St. Michael, Alaska, who, who knew of these two. Other publications in the past had misidentified them as Eskimo or as Indian or as Inuit, which didn't strike us as possibly being accurate. We wanted to know more about them, and we determined that they were Yupik and that they were at least one of them. Alexi was quite well known before he went on this journey. Yeah, what was great about a lot of the journals that we wrote is these crew members were revered by their fellow crew members, and um, they had written a lot about them and were treated as equals and hadn't been talked about in their hunting practices in previous books about this expedition, and we felt it was about time that they got the credit that they deserved and the honor. So we were really humbled to be able to discover new information and to confirm that they were Yupik. That's a great thing about the book too. And even though it's retelling a story that happened so long ago, I talked about expanding the frontiers of knowledge. And that was one of the things that was prominent in the book. When I thought about it, I thought of them meeting people and just not knowing the same reason that Columbus thought he was seeing people in India when he arrived in the new world, because they just didn't know. And they just wrote down what they thought was the closest they could come, just like the animal species there. And just like seeing the water and finding out for the first time what was really in it, they didn't know who these people were. And so mm -hmm. you were able to add that to the historical record and give them the proper identification, give them their humanity and their culture back. Yeah. And, you know, it's always so gratifying to be able to dispel ignorance. And, you know, when I was first reading about this expedition, I was so hoping that Alexi and Anigan would survive. And, you know, for Anigan, he actually survived the 22 months and ended up contracting smallpox in Siberia and dying that way. So really, really heartbreaking. But again, the, the heroism of all the crew members and especially of Alexi and Anigan just really fueled us to look for answers and to to write this book more deeply. You know, once they got to Siberia, the groups had separated. There were three groups. One group vanished in a in a in a storm. The Long had a group and Melville had a group. And by the time they actually got to Siberia, they were a couple of hundred miles apart and neither neither knew if the other had survived. And Alexi and Anigan, because of their hunting skills, really kept both of those groups alive. 
You mentioned that lock of Emma's hair and about holding that artifact in particular and it making you emotional. When you live with a book for the years it takes to research and write it, really seeps into your subconscious. And so I was curious, something I have never asked another author before or a pair of authors, were there any dreams of being stuck in Arctic ice or subtle changes you found yourself making as you picked through the information you needed to write Bound by Ice? Did it work its way into your mind in such a way that you thought, you know, hey, is the car full of gas before I make this trip because I don't want to get stuck? Was there anything like that? Not necessarily. I do remember, you know, we were doing the bulk of the writing of this book in the winter, and I remember going outside barefoot in the snow just to get that feel of what these guys were experiencing for you know every moment for months on end, and uh, it wasn't real pleasant. <laughs> you, you know, and I also spent time in snow trying to see if I could write a journal like Commander DeLong did, and with that blue pencil, and I failed miserably. And he, you know, he did this for months, and he, also he somehow sharpened that pencil with a knife while he was frostbitten and <sighs> dying of starvation. So. I wouldn't have lasted a day, Dean, to be honest with you, even though I'm Canadian, I'm a Canuck. Just the skills that they ended up having. And, you know, you think about the last days, their dying days with rags around their feet and, you know, not having eaten for days and days or having anything to drink. And they had the fortitude to say, I'm going to die, but I want our notes and what we've learned to survive. And that became their priority. And I don't know if that would have been my priority if I was faced with starvation. Yeah, he's going to die and you're worrying about keeping the journal or you're starving, you're tired, you're all of these things you've been lied to, you're feeling betrayed by this map maker and, and all these other things. Your spirit has to be crushed. And yet he's putting that pencil to that tiny slip of paper and making sure that he keeps notes because his goal, just speaking there of DeLong, is to advance the science of it. So it really is that idea of the elements versus them on that ship. And when they end up being off at like his last hours, he's still going to continue that mission. And it's really a defiance. It's a boldness that he has throughout that they all manage to say they're going to have their ideals, their goals, and they're going to survive somehow. They're going to, they're going to make something come out of this and achieve what they must. And they know that by doing so, they're helping people who come after them not make those same mistakes. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think it was ego, and I don't think they wanted to have their names in, in the history books. I really don't think that was it. I think it was to advance science and humanity and to help others then further and to discover the North Pole and to not make the same mistakes and to learn from their expedition. And right now, the Long's measurements are being used by NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. I think that's the right acronym. They're transcribing the Long's notes and comparing the thickness of the ice, the temperatures, those sorts of things to what's happening today. And that's helping them track the extent of what we're finding. I saw a quote in a National Public Radio interview recently where one of the scientists said, you know, the type of ice that locked the Jeanette in in September of 1879 no longer exists at that point in the season. That Those kind of ice flows don't occur until much later in the fall now. So that's an indicator of, of how the climate has changed quite recently, but also especially in the last since 1879, when then Jeanette went up there. Yeah, their, their meticulous ice measurements from 1879 have really been used by citizen scientists and scientists studying climate change and global warming to 
prove that it actually exists and how quickly it has occurred. And, you know, we talk about the explorers themselves feeling like perhaps they failed in their mission, but they really had so many successes. They discovered, of course, that Greenland wasn't a continent, that there wasn't a tropical polar sea. They discovered Arctic islands. They identified new Arctic flora and fauna. And the remnants of the boats that were discovered on ice flows years later, that information was able to have future explorers actually find the North Pole, construct the right boats, and to go the right way to find the North Pole. It's easy to feel that pity for them, feel like they failed, and to feel condescending to people in the past that were just ignorant. I mean, they weren't dumb. They knew as much as they could get their hands on at the time. Those men on the Jeanette, it wasn't their fault that they thought they'd find this tropical Shangri-La. That was what was agreed upon at the time. That was sounded, like, sounded pretty good, right? And they, certainly they'd seen and heard of many fantastic things before as people explored the Earth and found say something like the platypus or mm -hmm. some amazing new technology like the telegraph. Think what that meant to people just a generation before. In 2016, it seems relatively recent. I wanted to mention some of these expeditions today so that we don't get too full of ourselves maybe as readers and as people who read the news and remember that there's still so much to be learned and there's still danger. Maybe a little touch of thinking that we know everything because of our technology. We hear of ships like the Polar Queen and her crew that sought to travel a similar route, and they expected to find it open. They thought that it would be completely ice-free, and they ended up stuck and in Russia, so not too far from the same idea of being in Siberia. People don't always know there still has to be people that go and push the frontiers of what we know and go out there and try. And these are young readers you're aiming at. So as two people who obviously care about telling the history and care about inspiring young people, once they finish reading Bound by Ice, what do you hope they'll take from it as a message, not just to love science, not just to respect science. And today people say believe in science, almost like it's Santa Claus or something. But I prefer to think of it as believe in the scientific method. Go about things meticulously as these men did on the Jeanette and know what you're going into. Judge the facts, record things, test your theories, be able to be alert for outliers like the lead there in the tomato cans. What do you hope that your young readers will take from Bound by Ice as they go and become a new generation of explorers in their own chosen fields? I think just to develop a sense of curiosity about the world, no matter what field you're going to go into, to to always be open minded and always, always striving to find new things and not be, you know, single minded about any kind of a quest. As I mentioned in the beginning of the interview, these guys were musicians. They were poets. They were amateur scientists or professional scientists, however you want to want to put it. They had a wide range of interests, and that's of value to anyone. You know, I also feel it's important to respect nature. Earlier on, Dean, you talked about danger with the ice. Well, right now, it's dangerous to not have ice in the North Pole and in the Arctic. I believe the first time this year ever, there hasn't been a need for um, ice crushers and for tugboats and boats to crush ice to get ships into the Arctic. That tells you that you know, we're, we're in danger of um, 
we need the Arctic to keep the world and the earth cool. And hopefully there will be new scientists reading books like this, trying to figure out how we can solve that issue, you know, how we can keep our earth healthy. And, and so a new kind of explorer and a new kind of exploration rather than exploring new areas for us to live is how we can live compatibly and healthily in this environment. And I think that's a new kind of science and scientists that, um, you know, we hope that this kind of book will inspire. Well, Rich Wallace and Sandra Neal Wallace, I am disappointed our conversation came to an end. I got this book, my copy here of Bound by Ice says advanced uncorrected proof on the top, not for sale. That's how early I wanted your book when I heard you had a new one. Great. And then we have a conversation and it's, it's over all too soon. But the fortunate thing for listeners out there is they can become readers. The book is available for them to go pick up. They could take this adventure with you. And so I envy all of you who'll take the time to pick up Bound by Ice, maybe put it in the hands of a young person you know who needs a little direction in life, maybe. Maybe you need some inspiration. Maybe you want them to get off of the tablet or the computer. You never know what book will inspire you, like Rich here and I talking about how he loved A Quest for Fire. This could be the book that sticks with today's young people, and they're talking about it in the 2070s, how it changed them and gave them the inspiration they needed to change our world. It was worth it to put that six centimeter thick jacket on that I bought just to visit Manitoba last winter and uh, have it on while I read this book so that I would feel warmed up. I wish you all the best of luck with Bound by Ice and I look forward to talking to you next time. I'm sure your next book will be a great and enlightening read just as Bound by Ice and Blood Brother, which we spoke about last time. We'll have more books to discuss with you, absolutely. Thanks so much, Dean, and I'm wearing my Hudson's Bay coat in solidarity with you. (laughs) (laughs) Again, the book is Bound by Ice, a true North Pole survival story. As always, you can find the link to purchase your copy at historyauthor.com. And we hope you will click through there. Or even navigate to Amazon using the banner on our homepage for all your online purchases. You go to historyauthor.com, our banner takes you to Amazon, and Amazon.com gives us a small percentage of every purchase you make at no additional charge in your shopping cart. For just those few extra taps of your finger, you can help us keep the flux capacitor on our time machine humming like usual. Thanks to Rich and Sandra Neal Wallace for joining me a second time with this true tale of survival and sacrifice, all in an effort to reach the fabled North Pole. You can visit them at SandraNealWallace.com and RichWallaceBooks.com. You can also find them on Twitter at the handles Sandra N. Wallace and R. Wallace Books. And while you're on Twitter... Let us know what you think of the book and the interview at History Dean. Or you can toss us a like at facebook.com slash historyauthor. That's it for this installment of the History Author Show. I hope you'll join us for next Monday's all-new interview right here on iHeartRadio. And remember, if you're an iTunes subscriber, please take a minute to leave us a review. Well, until our next trip into the past together... Thanks so much for time traveling with us today. 
and have a great week. We still call it Broadway, but what's in a name? Take it from Georgie, it isn't the same. On the east side, west side, things ain't like before. There are tears in the eyes of the regular guys. Oh, New York ain't New York anymore.